Hello, this is Deborah Anderson, the Black Woman Animator, coming back to you with another video. And this video, I'm with Rainier Maningding from The Love Life of an Asian Guy. And we're going to be talking about representing ourselves and our people. So I would like to give a little time to Rainier to introduce himself. Hey everybody, uh, so my name is Rainier Maningding and I am the writer and creator of The Love Life of an Asian Guy. I started off as a WordPress writer and I eventually ventured off into Facebook. And I've been growing this platform for, I mean, seems like it's about like 10 years. Um, and we have a really large presence on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Facebook groups, and we're primarily a community for people of color to discuss different social issues. Um, and on our Facebook groups, we have different subsections for parenting, for food. So if you have an interest in any of those topics, it's definitely a place to go. Cool. So we're going to be talking about um, representation of Asians in film and animation and giving a voice to our communities. So under the representation of Asians in film and animation, what do you think about the history of representation for Asian characters? So that's anime in general. And then if we bring it to more recent stuff, we got Crazy Rich Asians, Always Be My Maybe. Dick Hero 6, Abominable, Bow, and Float. Yeah, so, you know, the representation of Asian Americans is a fascinating subject because for a lot of people, they, um, one, they don't know that Asian Americans have been in media for such a long time. I mean, uh, some of the first extras in Hollywood were actually Filipino migrants who um, were predominantly working class individuals um, but when Hollywood started to boom in the 20s and the 30s uh, they wanted cheap labor and so Filipinos would go in and you know because we're, we can be brown and sort of ambiguous we would play either Asian characters or Hispanic characters or you know quote Indians Native Americans yeah. and so um, our entry into entertainment has you know, we've we've been in here for for a very long time, but unfortunately, the you know the first seventy years really uh, were all just incredibly racist um, forms of misrepresentation. Um, you know, some of the first uh, images depicting Asian Americans were as um, you know very unintelligent and foreign and goofy, and um, you know, you can see characters in animation, like in Mr. Magoo. I can't remember what the Asian character was like, but mm -hmm. he was just the most racist, stereotypical mm -hmm. character with, like, the rice hat and, like, just mm -hmm. the super slanted eyes. And he was, like, Mr. Magoo's butler or whatever. So, mm -hmm. fast-forwarding it to, you know, Crazy Rich Asians, um, there's such a huge monumental shift in how we are portraying, portraying Asian Americans. I think the first um, real big step is allowing Asian Americans to tell their own stories. Um, yeah. But I think that we are just at the beginning of Asian American representation in, in Hollywood. Um, you know, I, I think sort of the first step of a lot of communities that want to be represented is they want to show uh you know, very bright and successful images and, you know, look how awesome we are, look how beautiful we are, look how incredible our stories are. But I'm really curious to see the development of this representation as it goes on to, you know, let's go talk to uh, Asian Americans who have more niche interests or Asian Americans who 
um, aren't as glamorous and, you know, ritzy as Crazy Rich Asians. So I think over time, we're going to see a little bit more nuance injected in Asian American representation. And I'm really excited for that. I think the 2020s will uh, be an opportunity to hear more from South Asians and South Southeast Asians. So I think the a lot of the media that we have now for Asian Americans tends to be very feel good and very positive and stuff like that. But I want to see more stories of our actual lived in experiences. Yeah. Um, with the, the, sh um, the movie always be my maybe something that I liked about that was, um, t two years ago, I decided to start watching Lifetime Christmas movies and then I quit very quickly when I realized that they're all the same story and then <laughs> um and then I watched Always Be My Maybe which was like the same storyline as Christmas movies where the guy all that's you know everybody knows and so but I liked it because they did it well and I liked it because um it was a it was a story where the people were Asian and you had that the little things that they put in that will probably be feel good for people from San Francisco or people who know the um the different Asian cultures that were represented in a movie it was the same plot line but the way they did it I liked it's like you can do the same story over and over again but just do it differently <laughs> and so I liked that um there was those I feel like even though I wasn't um, because I think Chinese and Korean was represented in the movie, but even though I weren't, I wasn't like Asian, those, t those particular Asians, I feel like I could st still tell there was things in the movie where, oh, if you're from San Francisco, that was for you. Or if you're from, if you're Korean or Chinese, that was for you. And so I, that's something I liked about how they approached the movie. Did you get to see it? Yeah, I saw it. Um, I actually really liked it. I mean, granted, I'm not the biggest rom-com fan and I, and I, I I sort of saw it as like it was really cute and I liked that we were going in this direction where uh, the two characters were allowed to just be kind of regular people you know it's not like oh here's this doctor and you know the president of this it's like you know like because sometimes Asian movies can be like that where all the characters are just so elite and so yeah. it was nice to see something a little bit more relatable and especially coming from the Bay Area um, I did catch on a lot of those uh, little references so i really liked it and i i've always believed that you know i mean we have just an infinite number of movies and media about um white people's stories and it's like you really could do the same story like you could do a coming of age story you can do a story of going to war or retiring or whatever and replace that with another different group and you will have a different unique story you know it's like yeah. if you if you do it from the vantage point of Asian people who moved to San Francisco, like it will be a completely different narrative than, you know, if you were trying to tell the story about Asian Americans who were coming in from New York or something like that. So I think it's just, it's fascinating that we're finally getting into um, these smaller, more relatable stories. Yeah. And so did you get like a Disney plus trial or anything? Did you get to see float or yeah. Did you get to see float? No, I didn't. I didn't, unfortunately. Yeah, my, um, I feel like, unless I'm just, uh, I don't feel like there was a cultural thing I missed, but it just seems like the characters could have been anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that. I heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just like, oh, okay, I guess. <laughs> and, and, and that's the thing is that, like, 
representation is this weird thing where you know we're always championing for it and we're always wanting to have more representation and then you know you get something and then you're like well i wanted representation but not that kind and <laughs> I, I i think you touch um on a really good point where a lot of media nowadays you know a lot of executives are trying to do that whole oh well here's a character who was white the whole origin is white and blah blah blah, blah but we're just going to tweak this one thing and make this character Latino or asian yeah. and sometimes you do get this feeling of like okay cool i get to see the representation but like does the right. story feel true and authentic to that group of people and i mean i guess in that case i guess it doesn't yeah, but I think the person who created it, who I think was Filipino, had a personal, it was like a personal story, but it was like, it still could have been anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, uh, uh, okay, yeah, I'll throw some stuff in. I mean, I'm if it, even if he threw some stuff in, I probably would have missed it, but I'm just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and it's one of those things where it's just like, it, it's it's a nice thing it's an it's nice that we have that and it's great that you know it's it's, a, it's an accessible form of representation that people can sort of identify with and be like oh hey you know they're like me too but yeah again i think you know we could obviously do better yeah so um a question that i would like to ask is what are some key filipino traits that a character or story could have that you that would let you know that a Filipino had a hand in it. Like, because with me for Into the Spider-Verse and then like the short called Substance that Jamal Bradley, it was like very obvious that, that black animators did it just from the way they walk or act or something like that. So from your vantage point, if, if you had a um, movie or TV show to have Filipino uh, characters, what is something that will be thrown in where you'll be like, yeah, Filipino did that. <laughs> You know, it's it's tough because I think also in order to answer that question, um, I have to sort of implore about what it means to be Filipino-American. And that's one of the things that I've wrestled with for such a long time, just trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to be Filipino-American? Because, you know, within Filipino communities, you have colorism and you have um, uh, uh, classism born of uh, uh, colonization. And so there are so many different aspects. So, you know... Like you could you could tell a story about Filipinos and it could be from the vantage point of us being very artistic and a lot of Filipinos who take up arts and music and dance. Uh, but then there's also aspects of Filipino culture where a lot of us, um, because of our history with colonization, there are a lot of us who are very political and a lot of us who are, um, you know, who are always trying to fight for people who are underrepresented. And so there are a lot of aspects to being Filipino that I think. Um, I could vibe with in terms of how we are mm -hmm. represented, but I was, and I was thinking about like, if there was a significant thing that I could say that, Oh, that is Filipino. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just couldn't think of anything. I think it was more just, um, about maybe the look, you know, I think, I think oftentimes, um, people, when they think of Asians, they think that Asians all look like East Asians. They don't realize that they're Filipinos, and there are Southeast Asians who are brown and people who have different types of um, uh, colored skin and hair texture and their nose looks different or their face looks different. And so I think that is one of the things for me, because being Filipino, um, oftentimes we are ridiculed by East Asians for being like the ugly Asians or the jungle Asians. And so I think being able to represent 
that side in a positive light, um, mm-hmm. I would attribute that as being sort of a a form of positive Filipino representation. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I it I think it really is complicated um, because Filipinos are still trying to figure out who they are themselves. Yeah, it's, I feel like it. I mean, obviously, Black Americans have like a culture, but we're still like simultaneously trying to figure out ourselves too. <laughs> uh-huh. Um. But while I have you, um, w- why can all Filipinos sing? <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's the thing that I was always I always wonder about because so growing up I um I grew up in a Catholic household and I remember going to church as early as I can remember being alive and you know my sister and um her her husband her now husband. Um, you know, they were always in choir and going to the Filipino, going to Filipino friends and relatives, like someone was always playing karaoke and I was trying to figure out like, why are Filipinos always so like really good at singing? Why do they love singing? Um, and I think a lot of it really does stem from the fact that one, we were colonized by Spain. And so a lot of us became Catholic and through Catholicism, Mm -hmm. a lot of us got into church music and gospel um, and so a lot of Filipinos um, grew up listening to gospel singers or 80s ballads and just so much of our music culture is is influenced um, by a lot of black American artists. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think a lot of Filipinos just naturally took to that style as a way to communicate um, and express themselves and um, you know it's interesting because I, I feel like I can see this in a lot of other cultures that were also that went through a period of colonization mm-hmm. where they adopted um, Catholic beliefs so whether you're talking about like Mexicans or whether you're talking about South Koreans like the ones who ended up singing in the church evidently just got the practice and <laughs> ended up being really good singers so it's kind of a it's a weird way of bonding over the fact that we have shared colonial history but also the fact that we can sing good so woo (laughs) yeah so that was a random question that was not originally on the list but i was like since you're here (laughs) um what do you hope uh for the future of representation of asian characters i i hope that the future of asian characters um like i was sort of mentioning before is is one that's more nuanced and one that allows Asian Americans to feel that it's okay to not be a doctor or to not be a scientist or, you know, it's okay to, um, to be a normal person. And it's sort of a weird thing to say, but so many Asian Americans are raised to believe that they're only valid unless the career they have, um, pays enough and that, anything below that or anything um, that has to do with the arts or anything that has to do with um, a a career that doesn't make a boatload of money is somehow seen as less honorable. And so I would love to be able to see more media and representation of like Asian American dancers and Asian American poets and writers and filmmakers. It's one that doesn't try to uh, like I was saying before, it doesn't try to make Asian Americans seem like this 
perfect community where we have all these like we're, we're so fabulous and we're so awesome and you want to hang out with us and you want to be with us um interestingly enough probably my favorite movie for asian american representation um is the harold and kumar series <laughs> because <laughs> yeah i remember being in high school and i think it came out in high school when i was in high school and i just remember feeling so seen uh, mm-hmm. by having like just two sort of these slacker Asian guys and like it just felt relatable in the sense that like they weren't trying to be martial artists they weren't trying right. to be like these cool guys who were going on an adventure they just seemed like everyday regular people and I'd love to be able to see more of that um, yeah you know I want to be able to see more coming of age films um, about being Asian American mm-hmm. you know as much as as much as I think that, um, you know, our immigrant stories um, are really important, I do want to see media on that. Um, I think that that sometimes can be, you know, the the automatic go-to for a lot of Asian Americans to talk about mm-hmm. the immigrant story. But I also think that, you know, the, the stories that are going on here in the United States um, are just as fascinating. Like there's that one movie by um, Justin Chan. Uh, it's called Gook. Mm-hmm. And... It was a phenomenal movie and it was mm-hmm. about, you know, um, I think it was like in the 90s or 80s. Um, it was about the uh, L.A. uprising and okay. the, the rift between Korean Americans um, and the black community in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was a brilliant way to, one, tell the true history um, of Asian Americans and also, mm-hmm. two, to tell a story that... Um, you know, is oftentimes overlooked. So I'd love to be able to just have more writers go into the history books of Asian Americans and Mm. just plot out all these different little stories, you know, from Asian Americans um, starting off in canning companies in Alaska and, you know, Mm -hmm. being coming, coming to this country to be fishermen to, like I was telling before about Filipinos, you know, joining Hollywood and becoming movie extras. And I think that those stories would be fascinating to hear, but right. I think it'll, it'll take some time. I think within about five years time, we might get there. Yeah. I can understand your sentiment because when I was watching see you yesterday on Netflix that um, Spike Lee produced, mm-hmm. um, I was just like, I was excited because it was a movie about black kids doing um, time travel Mm-hmm. But then it was like, oh, her brother got shot, and that's why she's doing time travel. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, can we stop getting killed by the police? Can we just have a feel good movie? <laughs> like it that, has that to, like, is resort about time to travel. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that he actually made uh, a time travel movie. But was it any good? Well, he he produced. It. He didn't direct it. Oh, okay. But uh-huh. um, it it was pretty good. It was just like. <laughs> like, no, why I know can we not escape <laughs> the police brutality <laughs> yeah and it's hard because like sometimes there are these certain um topics that tend to be you know recurring and sometimes like certain aspects of a community want want to be like oh hey like you need to talk about this but other yeah. aspects of the community are like no we don't have to always talk about that and i, I yeah. think that's one of the the, the tricky things about uh, communities of color looking for representation you know so much of our representation we tie to our struggle um, yeah and 
you know, on one hand, it's great that it defines us, but on the other hand, it doesn't have to always be yeah. the only definition for our stories. Yeah, sometimes when I uh, see people talking about being black in America, it's like um, some some people think, oh, if you're not from the hood, then you're not black enough. And it's like, mm, nope, we exist in all type of areas. And so, but we're in, in 2020 and on, we're all all the minorities are coming to a place where we we're not a monolith even amongst ourselves and so yeah and and that's what's that's um sort of what's what's fascinating about just watching discussions of representation go down because you start to see different factions within your own community that say hey you know we need to tell this story no we need to tell this story or why are we always talking about this group or how come we're not talking about that group and like yeah. it's wild because like things like luckily representation is getting better for a lot of different communities of color uh, but at the same time now that there is this opportunity where we can be represented i feel like a lot of people are sort of you know, getting in more heated discussions. And like I was saying before, it's like, we want re representation, but now that we have it, we're like super analytical about the types of representation <laughs> that we have. Yeah. So what do you think is going to be the catalyst or plan for getting more representation on screen? Do you think it's going to be um, asking the white people to do it or creating our own stuff or a combination of both? <laughs> I think both of them are, I think we're going to, what we're going to see is, um, sort of a parallel we're going to see on one side of the runway um you'll have these sort of white produced hollywood films where they're like oh my gosh crazy rich asians have made so much money we need to go, go ahead and jump on that hype i think they're already planning like it's like a, it's gonna be a trilogy i don't know why right um, yeah it's gonna be like hangover yeah. <laughs> the same movie yeah, right. over and over again <laughs> just in different places i mean I mean, I, I, I guess it's canon because I think that there are a couple other books um, from the author of Crazy Rich Asians, but I, I think that we're going to see that. We're going to see like the total commercialization of mm -hmm. Asian American stories, but then I think we're also going to see um, sort of a counter movement from Asian American filmmakers and writers and directors who want to say, you know... Um, that's great that we're having all this representation and all these, you know, really high budget films, but I want to be able to tell um, some of the more um, underserved communities, their stories. It's sort of like that movie Gook. It was an independent produced film and it didn't really get too much acclaim, but you know, I got to be honest, like if you want to stack up a movie next to another movie, Gook, I thought was a better experience than yeah. Crazy Rich Asians. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think that the catalyst is going to be more Asian Americans taking the dive and going into filmmaking and taking the risk because unfortunately a lot of Asian families don't approve of of a of a career like that. And so mm -hmm. you're gonna to have to we're gonna to have to see a lot more Asian American artists step up to the plate in in order for us to get a better piece of that representation. If not, then it's just going to be all led by white Hollywood executives. Mm-hmm. Am I, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but did, did David So create a film called Gook too? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was David So and uh, Justin Chan. Okay. All right. Okay, cool. I was like, that sounds familiar. <laughs> um, so last year you posted about your excitement around the Filipino anime Kamongong, the animation from Sinag uh, Animation Studios. What gives you the most excitement around this anime and the possibilities? Ooh. 
be honest, I don't even remember that one. Um, <laughs> I, I'm telling you, it's so it's it's wild because like so the other day I was talking to someone and they said that they had quoted um, a post of mine in their book and they read the post and I was listening to it, I was like, <laughs> oh, when did I post that? So I totally forgot. But um, I think I remember. I remember about posting about that Filipino anime. Um, mm. But I, you know, I I was always fascinating, uh, fascinated by different countries, different Asian countries trying to put a twist on different Asian pop forms of pop culture. So, for example, yeah. like anime. Anime yeah. is, is is notorious for being linked with Japanese culture, but you're starting to see an emergence of like. Chinese anime or Korean anime and Filipino mm-hmm. anime or it's kind of like K-pop where you have K-pop and then then you have all these other Asian countries yeah. that are doing J-pop and mm-hmm. you know Filipino pop but mm-hmm. unfortunately yeah I don't remember that anime uh so in general what would you what would be exciting about Filipino anime <laughs> well, <laughs> and I, the possibilities <laughs> I, to be, to, for me I think the most exciting thing about the possibility of Filipino anime is filipino art styles mm-hmm. um you know everything from our tattoos to our music to our food um is so highly underlooked you know yeah. the philippines has well over three thousand islands and people forget how much diversity there is in mm-hmm. the philippines you know there's different regions northern and, and southern and and so um I would love just to see more Filipino media, um, whether it's an anime or whether it's in TV shows, to be able to display all that variance, you know? Like, yeah. even now, we're just starting to peel back the layers of the different types of cultures within Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would love to be able to geek out and learn about um, more Filipino artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think that we do have a very distinct style um, and especially our tattoos. So when the Spaniards came to the Philippines, um, I forgot what the term is, but it's like Los Pintados something, something. But mm-hmm. basically they call the Philippines the land of like the tattooed people or something like that. Okay. Because um, indigenous Filipinos, they were covered in tattoos to signify like their tribe and their history mm-hmm. and whatnot. So I would love to be able to see something like that. You know, so I'd love to be able to see pre-colonial Filipino culture yeah. in anime. Like that mm-hmm. would be awesome because Filipino um, culture before Spain, like there were sultans, there were different leaders mm-hmm. within different regions. Um, and I think there like there are books written on Filipino mythology. Um, I just haven't really looked into it, but that would be mm-hmm. pretty cool too. Yeah. Um, so after finding out that their culture would be play would play a significant uh, more significant role in the Frozen sequel, the Sami Parliament of Norway, Sweden, and Finland, along with the Sami Council, um, re- reached out to the movie producers to collaborate. So the filmmakers were on board, and the Sami groups rounded up a group of experts to act as cultural consultants for the animation team. And this is a quote: "It's a treaty," says uh, Wente or went. It's in uh, keeping how 
indigenous indigenous nations have tended to negotiate with other in- entities in the past. I think it's a great precedent for how indigenous nations might deal with a corporation the size of Walt Disney, as well as uh, governments and other agencies around the use of their cultural and intellectual prop- property in, in entertainment. So we typically think of treaties with uh, history, war, and different countries and stuff like that. What are your thoughts um, on treaties for film and animation where there's a group of people from that culture that is entering into a treaty with Walt Disney or DreamWorks or Blue Sky or something like that and are responsible for making sure that their culture is accurately represented? I think it's actually really interesting. Um, You know, on one hand, I'm always going to be very pessimistic of a lot of, you know, bigwig executives and you know <laughs> at the end of the day i know that th- that their priority is to squeeze out as much money as possible or pay out as mm-hmm. little money as possible uh, mm-hmm. but i think that as long as the agreements are fair and, and it's and it's you know fair for for the uh, the communities um for for the community i think it should be fine i, th- I think as long as there really is um like it's a robust form of communication. It's not just like, hey, dude, who's part of this culture? You look like you can speak for us. Like, you know, we just get like the token like, Asian <laughs> person to, to to speak for all Asian people and sign away our, our whole entire culture. Um, all right. <laughs> but yeah, like if, I think if, the, if they go through the actual process of, you know, talking to different cultural leaders and different people um, to gain a more rounded out input, I think that'd be awesome. But Again, I think that the most, imp- I, I think that the, the confusing thing is to, you know, how do you monetize and how do you put a value on you're going to make a movie, a multi-million dollar, billion dollar movie profiting off our culture? Like, I'm just curious to know how that payout works, you know, like mm, yeah. how do they value like, okay, if this movie is a, a hundred million dollars, um, you know, 30% of the value comes from your culture. You know, so I, yeah. I'm just curious to know about like the the sort of um, the breakdown of that. But other than that, I think that's awesome that movie companies are reaching out uh, to get that input. Yeah, um, I know that they did that with Coco, where they where they uh, like talked to a specific grandmother and modeled the grandmother after her and stuff like that. And there was some discrepancy. I think they tried to pay her, but she did take the money or something like that. Wow. Um, yeah, but. Um, yeah, I I feel like there's um I feel like the lawyers will be excited about because <laughs> I went to um there was a conference in New Orleans that's I think it's now in Canada called Collision Conference mm-hmm. and something uh, one of the panelists um, there was a panel about how with virtual reality they're they're uh, the lawyers are having to create new um, contracts and all this stuff because it's it's like unknown land. Even though it's been around for a long time, they're like trying to figure out the legality of different things in virtual reality. So I'm sure with with treaties and and indigenous um, or or just different communities, it will be interesting for a lawyer to figure that out. Yeah, exactly. Just trying to like navigate that scene and trying to you know draw out how like the rules of like okay, you know this is going to cost this much or this is how much we're going to pay pay you. So I'm curious to see how it rolls out. 
And then like capitalism will be like, well, we'll just go back to doing our own thing. <laughs> yeah, because then it's like they could just be like, oh, you know, we're not actually going to ditch the community. We're just going to take your culture anyways and we're just going to profit off of it. Because fortunately, that's what they have done before. So it's like this is better than that. But <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, you probably don't remember this either. <laughs> uh, a couple of years ago, um, Jordan Peele turned down directing a remake of the anime Akira. Mm, I remember uh, that. Can you share what your excitement around the idea of this was, um, specifically with like just Jordan Peele doing that? So I was really excited. Um, this was after this was after I had watched Get Out, so I was like, mm -hmm. "Oh my god, this is gonna be so so cool!" <laughs> um, and I think I was I was mainly excited because um, having watched Get Out, I I loved the psychological play that went on in that mm -hmm. movie and i mm -hmm. think that um akira is such a like it you know for you know excuse my language but it was a mind fuck <laughs> akira, like like you i remember that was the first anime movie that i'd watch and i had and i watched it like not that long ago i just admittedly i didn't grow up watching a lot of anime mm -hmm. and um and i remember thinking okay cool it's like this guy in this bike and you know he has this weird friend and then obviously <laughs> the movie just goes like in a totally different direction and you just start to see all like the trippy visuals yeah. and so um i i'd like the i liked the idea of him um directing mm -hmm. it for that aspect of trying to tap into the weirdness of it and the sort of psychological nature of akira uh but yeah unfortunately i know that he turned it down <laughs> Yeah, he particularly after coming out with Get Out, he was just saying that he wanted to concentrate on making new things as opposed to making the same movie. But yeah, and and I know that he um he jumped on board with Twilight Zone. Um, yeah, and I saw like one episode, and it was really really good. And so like I can only imagine if it would have happened. But yeah, <laughs> tear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um. Kind of going from, I know Jordan Peele is like a special case, but mm -hmm. do you think there is a special relationship between black people and Asian people that can cause like the opposite side of the spectrum response to like a black person possibly doing an Asian thing more than the majority doing an Asian thing? Sorry. Uh, or is. What, what do you mean? So like, do you think there is a special relationship between black people and Asian people or maybe black people, Asian culture, I, I feel like most likely black men in, in Japanese culture, but um, is there a relationship there where you don't get that uh, where the majority is trying to do something and if you see a black person trying to do it, you might give it more grace or be more excited about it? Oh, like do I think that um, there's like a relationship between Asian Americans Asians and black communities like in terms of our stories you mean or yeah like where you're not um I, I understand that with Jordan Peele that there was the excitement about his mind being in it but oh, sometimes uh -huh. sometimes even if it's a a, a, a white guy with an amazing mind you might not be as excited oh yay <laughs> I, I totally know me yeah so like I think and, and I think this is what um there's this is what a lot of people, especially a lot of um, people of color, have a sort of a hang up on when it comes to white people producing our films. Um, it's not that, you know, we think that 
all white directors or bad directors or they, yeah. you know, they have shit ideas. But I think there is something to be said about living your entire existing in, entire existence and carrying the weight of various stereotypes and living through the experience of constantly having to bat away those stereotypes and constantly mm-hmm. trying to prove and disprove stereotypes and just like you know this this perpetual hamster wheel of what it yeah. means to be a person of color in the United States where you're always feeling you have to like you have to defend yourself or you feel like you always have to speak up and say something and not to say that that's a bad thing but you know I just know that a lot of white people don't have to go through that you know they don't mm-hmm. have to have to essentially defend their existence and they don't mm-hmm. have to defend why they are here um and you know not to say that i think that jordan peele is going to be able to like tap into the mind of the asian and you know like <laughs> but i think that um having that background definitely helps um yeah. having the perspective to know what it's like to be othered um is really important and i think that you know going back into what you're saying um for your question about like what fi- what aspects of filipino culture would i like to see uh, represented in media mm-hmm. you know for me i think that a lot of what i feel is important in terms of representation isn't so much about the physical and like what you can see but also uh-huh. what the characters are experiencing you know because yeah. like i don't really vibe with rich asians you know like mm-hmm. i i want to be able to vibe with someone who is artistic and someone who's confused and someone who's dealing with mental health issues and so i think you know having a director like jordan peele or having a director of color who at least understands what it's like to be othered in this country um will be a whole lot better than i don't know Zack snyder <laughs> directing an asian movie <laughs> yeah I feel like that's a good segue into the um, section where we're giving voice to our communities. Um, so in November, you mentioned how it's taking you years to realize that the way you play RPGs, role-playing games, is heavily influenced by your I- immigrant mentality. Can you expand on this? And did it open a world of thought to how you think about gameplay and culture? Yeah, you know, it was um, it was a really emotional moment. I remember I was sitting and playing um, Pokemon let's go eevee uh mm-hmm. with my wife because she she had bought it for me for my birthday and i was playing it and p- yeah, for, for those of you who are unfamiliar pokemon let's go eevee it's basically the original pokemon blue and yellow games but it's like fit for the nintendo switch mm-hmm. um but anyways i was playing <laughs> through right and you know it's like pokemon you can build up your roster of pokemon and you have to heal them and level them up and whatnot and i remember playing and um, my wife came up and she was like, hey, like, why are your Pokemon all like super weak? Like, you should go heal them. You should, you know, go give them like the different potions and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, and I noticed that I was hoarding all of my potions, all of my items. Yeah. And all of my Pokemon were like at the brink of dying. <laughs> and I w- <laughs> and every time I would want to heal them, I would take them to this to the Pokemon Center to heal them for free because I didn't want to waste any potions. And then I just like it it hit me just randomly. I was like, wow, you know, I was letting my own Pokemon and I was sort of seeing this like in, in, in two different ways. One, I was looking at it from the perspective of me playing this game, but two, Mm -hmm. I was looking at it from the perspective of like, I don't just do this with Pokemon. I do this with myself. Like I do this 
with myself where, you know, I, I will go hours without eating or I'll, I will like not take care of myself in different ways uh, because I'm so concerned about like money or I'm so concerned about something else. And I think that that really um, harkens back to what a lot of immigrants go through and a lot of people who are lower income starting off go through where, you know, you just feel a perpetual sense of anxiety. You feel like everything can vanish mm-hmm. in a moment's notice. And I think that for a lot of immigrants um, and immigrant families, like they definitely feel that. And they have this sense that, you know, we're here in this country. We need to do everything that we can to make it. If, if not, then we're going to go back to that. Whatever mm-hmm. that is, whether it is that country, whether it is that neighborhood, um, yeah. we are always just fearful of that. And so I think that fear sometimes carries on with you for the rest of your life and it infiltrates so many different parts of you, whether it is your ability or inability to take care of your mental health or what is, whether it is the way that you play video games. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's just so fascinating that, you know, how you were raised and your upbringing can influence your psychology in something as random as playing a video game. So I yeah. it was really interesting. And I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 29 and I'm still learning how my mind works. I'm still learning how my upbringing has shaped the way that um, I think and, and, and I make these make various decisions. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm in my 30s and I'm making breakthroughs like every week. Like, oh my god, that's why I do that. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. And sometimes, like, like I, like I'll talk, I'll, I'll talk to like, yeah, you, know, um, you know, if there are people who are younger and people who are in like their early 20s and like they don't get it, they don't like understand because you haven't reached that moment yet. And I was like, it happens in in the mid 20s. On, right and I, and I talk to people who are in their 30s and 40s and they're like oh yeah in your 30s and 40s it just gets even more intense you just start <laughs> more more repressed memories start to come back to the surface and right I, but it's it's exciting though because you know like to to actually learn something new about yourself um you know it can change how you do things and you, and yeah. you sort of become more intimate with how you work and your process and and you know, you're just being more honest with yourself and you're just like, you know what? I've been alive 29 years. I understand <laughs> that this is how I am. I need to start yeah. doing this. So, yeah. hooray for breakthroughs. I'm mostly excited about it because I'm trying not to mess up my future children on accident <laughs> <laughs> or on purpose, but like, like on accident, it's just like, oh yeah, that will probably be bad. So let me fix that now. <laughs> yeah, and that's another thing that sort of motivates you to crack that habit because like some i think one of the worst things is like when you see something in yourself and you're like shit that's the thing that my mom did and yeah. i do it too oh my gosh i because re- there's just there are certain things that like my mom would get anxious about and my mom mm-hmm. would get like stressed out about and i do that too and i'm like oh my <laughs> gosh like and and i'm the same way because livia and i want to have kids one day and i just I don't want to develop those habits. So it's it's so important for me to like be cognizant of it now so I can yeah. try to like you know be a, <laughs> when I'm ready to have kids, I I can, you know, leave that shit. Right. Um so uh as black woman animator, I try to put myself out there to not only be a representative 
representative of uh, for my community, whether that's like the black community or animation community, and for others to see that there's someone who does animation and looks like them, but also to be a resource for people to get information. So what do you feel your role on the Love Life of an Asian Guy platform is? You know, that's a really good question because um, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, my page has changed over the years so much. I started off writing about my own personal life. I started writing about interracial dating. Then I wrote mm. about, um, you know, racism and white supremacy. And, you know, now I talk more about politics and economics. And mm -hmm. so my page, I, I've always seen it as a fluid entity. It, it, it isn't a page where this is what we talk about and this is what we always talk about. Yeah. Um, and I try to just, um, I try to make it a little bit more free flowing like that. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think one of the tricky things about having a, a platform like this is you're constantly in a battle of the content that you want to make that feels yeah. good to you, that, that fuels your creative energy, and then the content that other people want. Um, right. And sometimes it's really difficult because, you know, by the time you get a sense of what content your audience likes, you might be a different person, you know, yeah. like people change and creators change and you know my interests today might be totally different than they are next year it's not necessarily um a testament to me changing my morals and my ethics or anything like that mm -hmm. but sometimes it's just i want to talk about different things and so when i try to contemplate my role and the you know what my page is supposed to do like what is it even for mm -hmm. i think what I want it to be is I want it to be a space for people of color to be able to share their opinions unfiltered and to be able to have a space to just converse. And I know that even for me, going on social media, on Twitter, on Instagram, there aren't a lot of spaces where you can really just dig into some of the issues that are really on your mind. Yeah. Um, you know, if you try to talk about race on a CNN article then you're going to get trolled by a bunch of racist people so it's yeah. like the the internet is this weird thing where everyone can join and so you really have to cultivate um, your own environment and so I want the Love Life of an Asian Guy to be a platform for uh, to uplift more people of color um, that's why mm -hmm. I've been trying to um, invest more time and resources into uh, lag radio because I think looking back at my life and, and the work that I've done on the page, um, I got lucky. You know, I came at, mm -hmm. at a great time. Um, I put in the work that I did. And just over time, the platform grew. And, you know, I'm just one person. And yeah. I, I know that there are so many other people who have that potential, too. And I want to be able to, you know, um, try to get more names out there because I know how hard it is to be seen. I know how hard it is to grow a channel and how hard it is to grow a podcast. And so, uh, you know, I'm struggling building on my podcast too. And, mm -hmm. you know, I want to be able to just offer that opportunity. So that way um, more communities of color can sort of benefit from this thing that we're all going through. Yeah. I feel like something that your luck comes from is also being consistent because um, last year, I decided at the beginning of the year to to come out with a YouTube video every Wednesday, mm -hmm. and I succeeded. Fifty two oh <laughs> YouTube videos, and some of them came out at like eleven fifty nine, but it was still on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, I when people see that consistency, then they're more willing to kind of be there with you, mm -hmm. and then 
Um, something else I noticed from my consistency is that now people will send me things. And I mean, because my industry is so specific, the animation industry, and I'm in the industry, most of the time when people are sending me things, I already know, or I already knew like two years ago. (laughs) 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 But I mean, I appreciate that people are seeing what I represent and sending me stuff to post or to comment on or something or like, oh, you're an animation. Did you see this? And I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, and that's that is probably the most important thing that I could say uh, that any creator should do, which is be consistent. Um, because you know, when you're following a page, sometimes it's like, ah, oh, when do they post? How often do they post? But if they know that you're always there every week or every yeah. day, and especially if you have certain times or a certain schedule, it's kind of like a TV show, you know, Hey, it's Friday. It's time for this show or, and so I think people are naturally programmed to consume media that way yeah. where they have certain habits and they like to watch their shows on certain times and certain days. And so, um, you know, me being consistent was probably the, the biggest factor. I just, I don't know. I just decided one day I'm just not going to ever stop posting. I'm going to make sure that every single day I try to post. Um, I, you know, nowadays I've been sort of um, being less strict with myself and I take the weekends off. Yeah. But, um, you know, like you said, posting consistently is the most important thing because then people realize that, you know, they know where to find you. And, you know, in, like in your case, um, people start sending you content and then it just becomes easier to to know what to post about because people are telling you what they want to see. Yeah. And so, um you know, for anybody out there who is trying to build out their platform, you know, consistency is the most important thing. It, yeah. it might not be elegant. You might not have the best production quality or you yeah. might have typos or it might look ugly or whatever. But I think as long as you put in the time, uh, people yeah. respect that most. Yeah, that's what I think, too, because I'm, I mean, I'm always filming my YouTube videos on my phone. But as, if the content is what people want to hear, then they'll be you don't have to have the DSLR. <laughs> yeah. And that's and that's what it took me a while to understand, because I was really into cameras and lighting. And I remember I would just stress out um, <laughs> about like, you know, I would tell people like, oh, I'm going to make this video. And I would be like, I, I remember a couple of times I, I said that I was going to shoot a video and I had the lights on. I had my my outfit on and I, I even put on makeup so I wasn't all glistening <laughs> and I remember just being frozen scared like uh, I don't know what to say like, and, I, and I would just get so nervous because I had this whole setup and it was so complicated but I think when you find out your process and if you find something that just works it doesn't yeah. matter if you record it on your phone it doesn't matter if like there's audio in the background is you know someone's talking or whatever like if you have something that people genuinely want to tune into they mm-hmm. really don't care about the, the the quality at the end of the day as long as it's not like totally un you know consumable yeah. then they're gonna love it so before i ask you a wrap-up question do you have any good stories of people coming up to you or reaching out to you that center around representation or your part in feeling a void I think the comment that I I get that sometimes trips me out um, is when people say that either they use my posts as inspiration or they've used my posts um, 
to educate their students in their classroom. I've had a couple of teachers and professors say that they use some mm-hmm. of my content uh, to teach about race or politics or anything like that. And I think it's just, it's mind blowing to me for a number of reasons. One, I was just, I was always a bad student. And so it's just like to be, to be the slacker, you know, hence why I identified so much with Harold Kumar to, I, to, to, to be the school slacker. And then on the other hand, be the person who was like helping professors teach is mind blowing. Um, yeah. But I think also when people say that, you know, they are inspired by my work or, uh, the things that I say, I look back at when I first started um, blogging in the first place. You know, I was 18 years old. I was in college. Um, you know, when I was looking at the internet, the only person who was really out there was Angry Asian Man. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really, you know, vibe with his page too well. And I wanted to do something on my own. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. There just wasn't the type of content that I felt represented my story you know Mm -hmm. and so that's why i started blogging about my dating experiences and and what it meant to be asian and so you know what started off as me not seeing the representation out there in the world has sort of led to where i am now where people feel like i am representing their community and so Mm -hmm. that is what's such a trip you know like to think that i started off with not having anything and then now we're in this time where there is representation everywhere and for me to be a part of that equation i'm really grateful um but you know i try not to let any of the negative or the positive comments get too deep into my head um you know sometimes it can really mess with you so i'm i'm grateful but so to wrap it up, do you have any comments, um, whether it's on representation or any words of inspiration or anything to give to people as we um, say goodbye? <laughs> yeah. So I'd say that, um, you know, when it comes to representation, the tricky thing about representation is it it, it isn't it isn't a status that you reach and then it stays that way. It's not that. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, okay, cool. We're level 16 representation. Cool. Like that is, there's only way we can only go up from here. Um, right. Representation is, it's a, it's a scale. It's, 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 it's a pendulum that's constantly mm-hmm. moving and it's something that you have to um, put pressure on and invest in and, and, and put your dollars in to support these things. Cause that's another thing. It's like there's representation, but then, you know, there's also the act of our communities going out and actually supporting these films yeah and supporting these uh, projects so i'd say that you know my note of um motivation or inspiration for anybody when it comes to representation is to constantly be seeking for it uh constantly be you know on the lookout for opportunities to um share your own voice and to uplift Mm -hmm. other voices um you know you don't necessarily have to be a filmmaker but you can be someone who blogs about um different issues and topics within your community you know representation doesn't have to be a movie it doesn't have to be a tv show it could be a podcast it could be mm-hmm. a tv or it could be a youtube series you know right and so i'd say the most important form of representation is the representation of your own voice um, yeah because there will always be people who will want to represent your whole community but there will never mm-hmm. be anybody who will want to represent you and right. you are a representation of your own community. So if you tell your story, you will inevitably be telling the 
story of your community because there are so many people who are probably just like you and mm-hmm. you know who knows you'll be you'll you might be able be able to be in that position uh where the stuff that you are creating then becomes a representation for somebody else so where can people find you if they like you after this <laughs> youtube video <laughs> yeah so um if you are interested in following my work um i'm available on pretty much all platforms facebook instagram youtube twitter um i just started tiktok I'm going to figure that thing out. <laughs> right. Just um, watch, watch. That's what I've heard. Watch first and then you'll yeah. hopefully figure it out. <laughs> I'm, I'm still figure. I'm like scratching my head. I'll figure it out. But yeah. um, you can find me at um, the lag. Um, again, it's all, it's on all platforms. Um, yeah. And I'm also. And that's um, L-L-A-G. Yes. So uh, the mm-hmm. L-L-A-G um, mm-hmm. on all different platforms. Okay, if you liked what we said, please let us know. And uh, like so I know it's real, comment and tell me how you feel. Subscribe to Seal the Deal and sign up for post notifications to show your zeal. And I'll see you in the next video. See ya.